Hi, I'm Charles Critchell, and I'm the founder and editor of Fair City, a London-based city transport think tank, which aims to advocate that city transport can be more accessible, equitable, and sustainable for the users it serves. I'd like to start by welcoming you to our Insight series, where in each episode, a guest and I will discuss how COVID-19 has specifically impacted the transport network and urban fabric of a global city, and the ways in which this could develop both during and beyond the current pandemic. Today, we're focusing on Detroit, Michigan's biggest city and the third of our global cities. Known as the Motor City, Detroit rose to prominence in the early 20th century and soon established itself as a manufacturing powerhouse situated in the heart of the American Midwest. Today, Detroit has a modern day population of just under 700,000, while the city is well known for its automotive, medical and cultural sectors. I'm delighted to be joined today by Ted Townsley. Ted works for a digital marketing agency that supports car dealerships across the United States, but is a passionate mobility and public transport advocate who sold his car upon moving to Detroit. Hi, Ted. How are you? And can you briefly explain where you're joining us from? Hi, thanks. I'm, I'm doing quite well. Um, I'm in the city of Detroit. We're in the the state of Michigan in the United States. Our state's in the Great Lakes region of the Midwest, and Detroit itself is uh, the largest city in the state of Michigan. Can you now briefly explain a bit about Detroit's geography and the ways in which people navigate the city? Yeah, sure. So uh, Detroit was really built in a car-centric way. So the city itself is, uh, the infrastructure is really built in a way to facilitate uh, quick vehicular travel. And as a region, we've kind of developed in that same way. So most personal travel is done via a personal car, but we do have alternatives. If you you know can access them, there's you know we have uh, a couple of different bus systems throughout our region. So within the city itself, there's the DDOT, which is the Detroit Department of Transit. We have uh, SMART, which is the Suburban Mobility Authority for Regional Transportation. And then Ann Arbor region has their own uh, transportation, their own bus system, uh, as well as the um, Detroit People Mover, which is uh, like a circulator in downtown. It's on a rail. It's autonomous. There's also the Q line, which is a new installment that only runs from downtown through Midtown up to the new center neighborhood. And all of those transit systems are uh, kind of overseen by the Regional Transit Authority, which serves as a fiduciary to uh, dole out federal money and to the various transit agencies for their for their development. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, beyond the you know the bus system, the public transit, there are um, there are two uh, you know bike share programs. The bigger of the two is Mogo, uh, and they're quite successful. Uh, their first couple of years, they actually beat out the the numbers that they had personally set uh, in a much shorter period of time. Uh, they I don't think they expected it. To be as, as successful as it was. Uh, but it kind of goes to show that people don't want to have to drive everywhere to get every place. Yeah, I think it's just worth expanding upon why Detroit is a global city. First is its strategic location within America, which makes it home to one of the busiest airport hubs in the country. While its association with manufacturing and industry is something you alluded to in highlighting the importance of the car. Can you just tell us a bit about the three big organizations that are based in the city? You know, our region is home to the what has been long considered the big three. 
So those would be Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors. So their origins in our region and the vast amount of jobs that they've created over you know the last hundred or so years really has you know developed a, a strong car culture in our region. Uh, and because many people's jobs were tied to the automobile, so uh, if you're getting a good wage, you know you're getting that money from you know the automotive companies. The roads are getting more comfortable to drive in. Uh, a lot of people buy their vehicles from the big three, and really uh, it's turned into this situation where uh, a lot of people really personally identify with their mode of transportation uh, because it's tied to the job, it's tied to the you know the culture of the region, and and uh, so people have a strong identity with the automobile here. We're now going to focus on demographics and culture. Can you firstly explain how Detroit has fared against COVID-19? Detroit really got hit um, particularly hard uh, with the with the coronavirus with COVID-19, and uh, Michigan as a whole is you know got the third most amount of cases in the United States. We uh, you know really struggled, and with Detroit, we've been finding that the uh, coronavirus hits hard areas with uh, concentrations of poverty, uh, and Detroit itself has around 30% of the the population lives in poverty. And so when you have a a situation where uh, really your day-to-day, you have to go to work, you have to be there in person. And uh, all the, you know, the challenges that come with, you know, the daily contact with others uh, as a result of that really has resulted in a high caseload for COVID-19. And as you've said there, a third of Detroiters actually live below the poverty line. Can you explain what the demographic makeup of the city is and how this came into being? The city of Detroit is a majority black city. Uh, more than 80% of the city is is black and under 10% would be uh, considered white with uh, remaining percentages being Asian and Hispanic. Um, those are the main demographics for this city. And really this this demographic makeup has, it really originates in the 20th century. So last century, uh, as the big three really, you know, developed in the city and, and brought in a lot of jobs, uh, there was also a, uh, you know, a great migration of African-Americans from the southern states coming up uh, to uh, get these great jobs, you know, sp- provide for their family. And uh, as more and more people uh, came to the, to the region and were buying up homes, there was a really strong effort um, from our governments to encourage the you know the white residents of the of the city to move outward to sprawl outward into the suburbs and that was in no small part as a result of uh, real estate speculation and real estate uh, agents telling uh, their white clients uh, that the property values were going down. There's a lot of fear mongering happening, which uh, led to more people leaving the city, which is uh, what we call white flight. Uh, so there's this big movement of uh, people moving out of the city and um, really uh, this kind of effort from the government to to marginalize the growing population of African-Americans in the city and which boiled over in, in the insurrection of the late 60s. In that situation where a good chunk of the city burned down. There was all kinds of property destruction. The National Guard was called in and this furthered the pace of this white flight out of the city. And with that white flight, there was also a uh, encouragement for those jobs to go with the people. So there was kind of this general hollowing out of the factories of the inner city of Detroit and 
kind of it really left people behind because those jobs were uh, inaccessible to people who didn't have a vehicle. They weren't able to uh, purchase their own vehicle and get to these jobs. So it really kind of created this uh, large amount of inequity within the region, which is now still several decades later, probably one of the most racially segregated regions. How then do you think all these different factors, so poverty, race, prejudice, and policy, will serve to inform the direction which the city's authorities take in the weeks and months ahead? I've, I've read about how other countries are doing contact tracing, where they're you know, using big data and you know, tracking people to help uh, others identify um, you know, whether or not they've been in contact with someone who has the coronavirus. But I think with Americans broadly as a culture, we're really hesitant to, to accept you know, big government coming in, tracking you and doing all of that. So uh, particularly in Detroit with everything that has happened over the years, most people already don't want to, don't want the government knowing where they're at and, uh, you know, how they're moving around. But uh, with this contact tracing, it's, it's going to be pretty much impossible to, to encourage people to sign up for something like that. So I think really the method moving forward here would be uh, a different version of contact tracing. Uh, more likely an interview, just talking with the patient, asking them, hey, where have you been? You know, these last couple of weeks, we want to, you know, be real careful to, to slow this spread within our community. Who have you been in contact with? Where have you been? Uh, let's, you know, get that information going and then, you know, test the people that they've been in contact with, continue to do it. And, it, and it's going to be a little bit slower, but it still works. So you touched upon the lack of trust, which many Detroiters have in authority. Can you explain the makeup of the city's governance and the role of the mayor in the city's decision-making process? I would first push back on Detroiters generally having a mistrust in authority. I think uh, Americans broadly have a mistrust in authority, and Detroiters do too. We're Americans here. Um, to explain really how the city is engaging with um, you know, its governance, it's good to point out as well uh, what other levels of governance there are the, the city has, you know, they have the mayor, they have the city council, but above them, there's uh, a county level government that's set up as well. But beyond that, there's just the state as a whole. Uh, like our counties don't really have the structure to be able to, you know, act as a region. There's no regional governance bureaucracy to act on, you know, a lot of these big decisions like investing in public transit for our entire region, uh, which is something we do need. We do need that uh, regional effort to have public transit investment for the city uh, in making its decisions. It's the the mayor is like the administrator, the head uh, of the city government, and then they're elected by a citywide vote. And then when you look at the city council, there's uh, several members on that council, and each one uh, fairly recently, uh, like in the last several years or so, they uh, structured it so that most of them are voted on by council district. And that leaves two members out of the out of them that are voted at large, so by um, a citywide vote. So in, in making a lot of these decisions, the mayor and the city council have to work together, work with one another to come to you know various decisions, uh, particularly with the budget and that sort of thing. The mayor does have a fair amount of autonomy to act on their own, um, but for when it comes to you know spending new money that's not already allocated, the the city council has to be considered in, in that decision-making. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that the incumbent mayor, Mike Duggan, assumed office a few months after the city of Detroit filed for bankruptcy 
back in 2013, which was in fact the largest municipal bankruptcy in US history. Can you tell us a bit about this and how it impacted the city? Part of this process was having a, uh, a city manager. Someone was enacted or was, um, was essentially hired by the state to run the show here for the city. So the, so the mayor was elected but, and the council members were elected, but they didn't really have a lot of power themselves uh, during this time uh, to be able to act in their own way. Uh, and how that was uh, structured was, or how that happened was uh, the state had passed a law uh, allowing for for a city management program, so that allowed uh, for the state to come in and say, "We don't trust you as a city to, uh, you know, balance your budget. We we're putting someone else in to fix things up for you," uh, and that was uh, widely seen as uh, an overreach in the state's authority. Uh, the people of Michigan actually voted to uh, get rid of that uh, city management. Uh, law, but then the the state found a way to bring it back, and then they had uh, that that manager come in. Uh, they were there throughout the bankruptcy, and then uh, really it, it led people to really have a dislike of the state government and of the leaders of the state at that time because it was it was widely seen here as uh, an overreach and taking control where they felt that their votes in the people they elected were were sufficient and that you know, they wanted them to leave their city. So I think it was more, more so, uh, you know, the city council and the, and the, and the mayor came out uh, of the bankruptcy uh, looking a lot better in the eyes of many people here uh, as a result of, you know, that, that state action and uh, come out of it with a balanced budget. And they were able to come forward with several balanced budgets since, which has actually helped us in this current situation with having a bit of a, a surplus to, to manage ourselves with. But it also, it, it didn't happen without people getting harmed in the process. So a lot of the former city employees they lost a lot of their pension benefits. Various things were cut uh, to, to make the budget balanced and to, to allow the city to get away from um, their creditors. Uh, so there, there was a, quite a bit of damage that had been done. And ever since, the city's just kind of been working to build itself up and you know, get things in order and, and really uh, work to bring back the services um, that were lost over the last, you know, several, several years or even longer than that. Following the recent death of a Detroit bus driver from COVID-19, the city's transport workers went on strike, which resulted in the demands of the workers being met, along with a cancellation of fares for the duration of the pandemic. What subsequent transport-specific measures have been introduced to mitigate the spread of the virus? And what do you think this told us about the city's attitude to public transport? As the pandemic was starting to ramp up in the, in the city, unfortunately, uh, we lost uh, Jason Hargrove, Detroit Department of Transportation bus driver. And um, really, he brought to light what was happening because uh, we were seeing in other places, transit agencies were taking uh, more precautions. Detroit wasn't doing it yet. And he posted a video talking about you know, how they're not getting the protective equipment they need. There's not a lot of the safety precautions being put in place. Since that strike happened, the DDOT operations shut down uh, for a whole day and because they uh, did a stay-at-home strike, uh, they didn't show up to work. And thankfully, the, their, their demands were met uh, for the most part. The drivers were given uh, protective equipment. They eliminated fares for 
passengers. So you don't have to go up to the front of the bus to pay anymore. You you just board in the, the back, uh, backdoor boarding happened. Also, they, uh, they closed off most of the front portion of the bus to encourage that social distancing. And since then, they've continued to try to make some improvements. They've started giving passengers masks um, and Smart, I know, has been giving uh, you know hand sanitizer on the bus. Unfortunately, when I've talked to uh, other bus riders, they're telling me that there's the the masks aren't always there. DDOT doesn't have the hand sanitizers, from what I understand. We're not a hundred percent sure about the sanitizing that's going on, and unfortunately, both major bus services cut their frequency and cut a lot of their um, routes. Uh, so that has led to a lot of bunching that's going on uh, at the bus stops. I've seen, you know, uh, up to a dozen people at one bus stop just waiting for a bus. And, you know, a bus will come by and just pass them because they're already at the capacity of what they can handle given, you know, the current restrictions. So um, the transit agencies here have done uh, some efforts, but there is still uh, room for them to do more. Okay, and if we just take a look at what public transport actually means in Detroit, I was reading a couple of months ago about a local politician, Matt Maddock, who made some disparaging remarks about people who ride the bus in the city, citing that it was for poor people and that they should, in fact, be using Ubers to get everywhere. Given these comments, what do you think the general perception of public transport is in Detroit? So I think in Detroit, a lot of people see it as a um, transportation of last resort and that you're only using it if you can't afford the car. And then broadly in the region, uh, people tend to you know look downly at bus riders and really see them in a negative light, which is something that uh, activists have been you know trying to combat uh, quite aggressively. Um, there's this perception that the bus isn't for everybody; it's only for a certain group of people, and uh, that's really uh, harmed the ability for our region to invest in public transit but also it leads to people believing that it's not necessary to have transit here. One of my big concerns is that, you know, this pandemic will start slowing down and we'll ask for more investment in transit and we're going to get pushback saying, well, why, why have transit when that's where the virus spreads? So if you now turn our attention away from public transport and look at car use in the city, as Detroit is, of course, synonymous with the automobile, and is known throughout the world as Motor City. How has the car shaped Detroit, both physically and perhaps more importantly, culturally? With the, the big three being such a large presence and uh, really the you know, subsidization of, of car culture broadly in the United States, as a, the region has invested in you know, our suburbs over the city, it's really become a largely car-centric environment And so throughout our region, you have very wide roads. Uh, A lot of places, there's no sidewalks. There's no places for uh, being a bicyclist. Um, If you're a vulnerable road user, someone who's uh, walking, taking transit, or riding their bike, you're particularly vulnerable in this metro region because uh, oftentimes there's not really a space for you. But when it comes to uh, the cultural uh, landscape, because, you know, the big three really gave a lot of people their livelihoods here. There's a strong connection to uh, the automotive and the vehicle and how how people identify themselves. A lot of times your own car, truck, uh, whatever it is, is an extension of someone's personality more often uh, in this area. 
and I'd say that really uh, that impacts how people see themselves and how as a region we see ourselves as the Motor City we really uh, strongly identify in that way. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that automobile manufacturers like Ford actually offered to pay their workers double the average wage, which meant that many working class Americans were therefore able to afford consumer items, including their own cars. So in view of this, do you think that Detroit has a place in popular American culture as being a city which both encouraged consumerism and to a lesser extent the attainment of the American dream? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's the, the city itself was built on the motor vehicle. Many of the neighborhoods uh, were built around people who were getting good wages for the first time. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of homes were built for the single family with the car, a family car. And we can see that still today. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of the neighborhoods are built for, for that structure where it's, uh, I think it's the majority of the, the city. I want to say like more than 90% of the, the city zoning is for single family zoning. So it's really built off of uh, one family, a car, and uh, this lifestyle of car ownership. And, you know, you're working for the big three, you're getting good wages, you get a good pension at the end of it. uh, And, you know, you can live your whole life working for that one employer. uh, And that's really what it was built off of. So while we know how important the car manufacturing industry is to the rise of the city, just under a third of modern day Detroiters don't actually own a car. What then are the barriers facing those who firstly do want to drive and secondly for those who don't drive? So I'm one of those Detroiters that I don't have access to my own, to a personal vehicle. Um, I was someone privileged enough to be able to choose that though uh, and make my, um, my living condition in, in a way where I can afford to uh, get rid of my vehicle. Uh, many people aren't given a choice. Um, you either have to have a vehicle or you have to rely on um, public transit that doesn't, that isn't well invested in and isn't the most reliable or a bicycle, which is particularly dangerous on a lot of these streets. For someone who wants to get a vehicle, I can see why with how this is, with how this region is built and uh, it almost demands that you have to have one to be able to participate in the economy here. Uh, and so unfortunately, vehicle ownership is also really expensive. So you may be able to get, you know, your first used car for, you know, however many dollars, but uh, you're also spending a lot of your paycheck maintaining it, uh, trying to, you know, keep it, keep the gas in the tank and that sort of thing. Um, and then if you're someone who just doesn't want that or, or can't, uh, afford a vehicle, you're, you know, faced with a, a built environment that um, really marginalizes you because this whole region is built for the automobile. It's built in a way so that it prioritizes uh, motor vehicle traffic. Uh, and if you're not that, then uh, you're not part of the priority. You're really kind of um, put on the outskirts of, of, you know, the transportation system. So for these people who either don't drive or don't want to drive, what is the city doing to promote other modes of transport? As far as for what the city is doing now to, to try to encourage you know, people to use other methods and to uh, keep, help people uh, get off of this car dependency, the transit systems in the, in the region have, have improved slightly over the last couple of years, but there's also um, you know, several different opportunities for someone who wants to uh, 
uh, get around the city, there's there's the Mogo bike stations. So if you want to have a, uh, a rental bike, you can have access to that uh, in various parts of the city. Uh, there's those um, uh, electric scooters, which are have been available and uh, really were uh, widely used in the in like the more densely populated areas of the city. And in addition to that, the, the city has invested in its infrastructure a little bit more to encourage multi-use. And the city seems to be interested in continuing that. Um, for uh, Jefferson Avenue, they added protected bike lanes, which were uh, one of the longest protected bike lane in the U.S. Uh, at that time. And they've experimented with other ways to reallocate the street space. Uh, so in the northwestern part of the city, they redesigned the street to encourage more uh, pedestrian space, make it safer for, for other road users. Uh, in the southwestern part of the, the city, they uh, did this interesting thing where they essentially made everything the same level. And that encourages uh, car vehicles to go a little bit slower because you're on the same level as pedestrians and bikes. It's only in one street, but it's it's an experiment that they're trying to make it easier on one hand to close off parts of the city for, for larger events, but also, uh, you know, make it safer for all Detroiters, regardless of, you know, the method of transportation that they're using. So in the last few years, it's actually emerged that Detroit is now looking to transition from motor city to mobility city. Can you briefly explain what this may look like and what actions are being taken? Yeah, so Detroit really wants to be the leader in uh, autonomous vehicles globally, on one hand. They want to lead the world in getting autonomous vehicles on the market and having it you know, be accessible to more people. But they're also realizing that to have a, you know, a healthy, vibrant city, uh, they need to reallocate space so that so that people can safely bike around their neighborhoods, people can you know ride those electric scooters. They're really taking investments to make the city easier to navigate, regardless of you know how you choose to navigate it. And so they really want to redefine as more than just you know auto centric city. They want to define themselves as you know uh, you can be mobile here regardless. That's a really good point. And some of the key themes which seem to have shaped Detroit, both historically and present day, are identity and aspiration, which is something the city seems to be grappling with as it aspires to make this transition to mobility city. So why is it important that the city are able to achieve this? It's been found that the single greatest factor for an individual to escape poverty is access to transportation. So when uh, you have access to transportation, you can get to your job, you can get to your doctor's appointment, um, you have this freedom of mobility. Uh, and then in reshaping the city to allow for different types of mobility use, uh, whether that's public transit or a bicycle or what have you, uh, it gives that freedom of mobility to more people, uh, which encourages more of more people who may not be able to afford a car or an autonomous vehicle um, but they they have a bicycle or they can get one of those scooters and or they ride public transit and suddenly um, you know they're finding themselves having an easier access to those jobs and to um, you know the doctor's appointments to the grocery store and and it really um, over time it uplifts the the whole city. It seems to be a really pertinent point because as we were saying, a third of Detroiters don't actually have access to a car. So the availability of other modes is clearly critical in enabling social as well as physical mobility. 
Looking at how this affects the city itself, what do you think are the economic drivers for Detroit becoming less reliant on the car? Yeah, so the city over the last um, 40 years or so have really lost a large part of their tax base. Uh, there's been really a, uh, a lot of people have been moving out of the city from 2 million people down to less than uh, 700,000 uh, people live in the city. And that's really um, hollowed out the tax base here. And so by encouraging dense uh, environments and encouraging more people to live here, it, it will uh, you know, help to bolster the, the budget that the city has and help them to uh, continue to reinvest in more parts of the city. Perhaps another thing the city wants to do is to promote inclusivity and ownership while still offering the option for people who don't completely want to forgo their cars. Do you think this balance is something which is not only important, but intrinsic to the city's mobility future? Yeah, I think Detroit, as it carves out its path for the future, really wants to create a a place that works for everybody. Detroit wants to be a city that says, hey, uh, we have a place for you. Uh, Regardless of who you are, where you came from, um, you know, how much money you make, uh, there's a space for you and you'll be safe uh, in navigating our city. So really like being able to say that and make that statement as a city would be really powerful in, in its future. And I, and I think that's where they want to go. So we've spoken about this aspiration, but do you think that Detroit is effectively using the unique circumstances of the pandemic to work towards this ambition of mobility city? Uh, I don't think it is. Uh, so really the, the city's kind of reeling from this pandemic and has been really just trying to do whatever it can to, you know, balance their budget and uh, make sure that they'll survive this without a potential another emergency management situation. Um, so unfortunately, that has led them to uh, take a look at uh, what's going on there. A lot of their budget comes from the uh, casinos in the city. And since those are closed, their, you know, their tax base is a lot lowered as a result. And so they're, they're not taking new investments at this time to um, really reallocate space. They're um, keeping things really, I would say, business as usual. Fortunately, though, the projects that they have planned uh, to do that reallocation space are still in plan. Uh, they still plan on you know implementing them. There's not a reduction there. And though I would say that I think they could have done more, um, at least they're not uh, you know, taken away from, from those efforts. So the, the federal government passed what's called the CARES Act, and that led, that had an investment, sizable investment in public transit to, to help the public transit agencies, um, you know, maintain a budget. And so Detroit Department of Transit received about $20 million from, from that bill. Uh, and instead of uh, using that money to invest further, to use it on top of their budget, they they used it to supplement their budget while cutting slightly to fill in the gaps in the rest of the city budget. Uh, so they did have an opportunity to do a whole lot more, but with you know everything sort of falling apart on this, they uh, they're just keeping they're maintaining they're just maintaining everything, keeping it at business as usual. Uh, they still have the same plans to make improvements, uh, but it's not as much as what could have potentially been done. So we've spoken a lot about transport, but I'd now like to focus on Detroit's urban realm. 
as it strikes me that Detroit seems to be this paradox of two cities. As outside of its gentrified downtown, the city is predominantly low-rise, low-density and car-centric, much of which has fallen into ruin and disrepair. Why is this and what are the city authorities doing to address it? Yeah, so uh, the city has uh, taken a lot of really strong steps toward uh, addressing the needs of the neighborhoods the, the last couple of years. Uh, and you're right, the, the city has been creating a, uh, a more gentrified downtown, midtown area. Um, really that like core downtown uh, region has been changing quite quickly the last couple of years. Uh, and the city has started to um, find the funding sources to develop the, the neighborhoods. So they've created the Strategic Neighborhood Fund, um, which is you know, drawing from different sources, philanthropic and uh, subsidies. And, and also there's um, uh, some you know, banking investments in there as well. Uh, and they, they started investing in a couple of neighborhoods. It was three at the first, and then now they've increased it uh, to seven additional neighborhoods. Uh, so there's a total of 10 other neighborhoods that there is getting, you know, funding. And really that funding is uh, with the goal to improve uh, walkability, improve the streetscape, uh, really try to uh, encourage new local business to start up there. And then also um, a big component is uh, preserving affordable housing because what they don't want to see is, you know, another development that happens that pushes uh, longstanding residents out. And so they don't want to have a, a gentrification situation happen where uh, the prices are rising, things are happening, and then uh, suddenly it's unaffordable. Uh, so they're really uh, taking a mindful effort in, in, in addressing that. Yeah, it's interesting to hear how the city are looking to reinvigorate some of these neighborhoods. But I guess in understanding how the city came to find itself in this position in the first place, perhaps you could just explain a bit about the Strong Town movement. Yeah, so uh, really the, the concepts of, of strong towns uh, really comes from this situation in which a lot of, if not most of American cities have invested in uh, infrastructure that uh, is really too big. We've overbuilt a lot of our infrastructure and have created a situation where as, uh, as people move and shift around and uh, a lot of our, our cities have uh, lost populations. We're coming to a situation where we can't afford a lot of the infrastructure we've built up. And so you have uh, a situation where in Detroit um, and, and elsewhere throughout the country where uh, the roads are crumbling, the, the sewer systems are falling apart, um, we're having a lot of flooding, you know, a lot of our basic infrastructure needs aren't being met. Uh, because of this lack of investment, you know, they, they built it with this idea that it'll be uh, maintained later. And now the bill's coming due, we can't afford to maintain it as it is. And so as a result, um, I think what the city is doing right now is trying to stabilize certain areas uh, to bring in new investment so that they can actually uh, properly invest in the infrastructure and maintain uh, more of the city's infrastructure network. And finally, given some of the diverse and powerful issues which we've discussed today, how optimistic are you for the future of Detroit in becoming more accessible, equitable, and sustainable for its residents? Yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic for the future of the city. I am concerned with uh, people uh, taking this pandemic as an excuse to uh, further uh, car-centric infrastructure investment. Uh, however, I 
with this you know strategic fund and this focus on building a city that uh, works for everyone and having this concept of 20-minute neighborhoods that they want to uh, implement in these you know uh, neighborhoods they've identified within that strategic fund uh, I think once those start getting implemented uh, the broader population will see that they're really positive I know that people do want this um, in the community meetings I've been to people um, people want uh, safety measures in place uh, ones I've heard about that they were actually given the opportunity to uh, the community was given in that neighborhood was given the opportunity to vote on the style of um, infrastructure change that they want and they voted for one that uh, shifts the priority over to allow for a more pedestrian and bicycle friendly environment and so I think people here respond very well to uh, this idea of building a place that's for everybody and building a place that uh, is safe for anybody to use. I think um, I think we've seen how the car-centric infrastructure played out and how it impacts us as a community over the long term. And really, um, we really are uh, craving a, a shift in that transportation network to allow for everyone to be able to get to where they want to be and where they want to go in a safe way. That's great. Thanks very much, Ted, for joining us today. Thank you. And for more comment on analysis on mobility in Detroit, you can follow Ted on Twitter at at Ted Tansley. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please do take the time to leave a comment, tell your friends, and of course, please do subscribe. Finally, please join us again for our next episode, where we'll be taking a look at how another global city is responding to the transport, urban and environmental challenges posed by COVID-19.